think that if there was, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the room, there's a lot of different, probably, opinions about different issues and different things. I think that if there were one thing that we could all agree on is this statement, it's hard to live with other people. Would we agree with that statement? It's hard to live with other people. Now, there's probably, from the youngest to the oldest, we have examples of what I mean by that, that often when you put people together, that it can be difficult, right? It can be difficult to live together. So there's kids in the room uh, this morning who probably share a room with, with their brother or sister, with a sibling. Any kids in here share a room? I shared a room for a long time growing up. Um, I won't ask you to raise your hand for this one, but um, I imagine it, there's times in which you disagree, right? Um, there may be times in which it's not just all harmonious, that you might actually fight with one another, that you argue with one another, that you have different ways of doing things, right? Um, one of the things that I, I get to do that I have the pri- privilege of doing as a pastor is I get to meet with couples as they kind of make their way uh, towards getting married, and we get to go through premarital counseling. And one of the things that we talk about over and over and over again in premarital counseling is forgiveness, that, that forgiveness is at the heart of, of any relationship, but especially with these two people who are coming together and they're going to share a home together, but not just a home, a, a bedroom together and a bathroom together. And there's a lot of potential for, for things to go wrong there, right? Because we come into that and we talk about forgiveness because we come into those situations with all, and what's revealed is we have all these idiosyncrasies. We have all these little ways of doing things that we think are normal. Right? This is how normal people do things, right? This is how normal people use the toothpaste or, or put the toilet paper roll on. And what we find is that there's a whole different normal with this other person, and it might cause some conflict, right? It's hard to live with other people. Um, but I think one of the best examples of how it's difficult is if, if you have a roommate or if you've ever lived with a roommate, and especially if it's somebody who, you know, you're not in love with them, um, you're not married to them. Uh, you don't intend to be. Uh, they may be a friend. They may not even be a friend. But you've got to learn how to live together. And this is why there's a million roommate horror stories out there, right? You, you're th- some of you are probably thinking of them right now yourself. I'm not going to go down that road necessarily with you, but maybe in your neighborhood group you could share um, a roommate horror story. Um, because it's not easy to live together. I remember when I was in college, this is not, I just had wonderful, always beautiful roommates, but I I remember going to visit a friend um, at his house and going to use his bathroom, and as I'm in his bathroom, I notice the shower curtain's kind of open, and I I look in there, and it's full of dirty dishes, (laughs) the bathtub, and there's just grimy, greasy water, and I come out, and I'm like, dude, what is with the dirty dishes in the bathtub. And he's like, man, we have this roommate who just refuses to do any dishes. And finally, we, we like brought him to account and there were so many dishes that he was overwhelmed. So he tried to do them in the bathtub and he clogged the bathtub. So yeah, it's hard, right? It's hard, it's hard, it's hard not to like seriously injure that person at that point. Why am I talking about this? Well, if you're, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through the life of David. And what we've, what we've begun to discover, especially last week, and what what's, we're really going to continue with this theme this week, is that God wants to dwell with us. That the one who is holy, 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 
the, the maker and the creator of all things, the one to whom he can claim sovereignty over every molecule of the universe, he wants to dwell with sinful people. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how revolutionary that is, that God actually wants to live with us. Because if it's hard for two sinful people to live together, how much harder can it be for a God who is holy and without sin to actually dwell with people who are sinful? And we saw last week that it's really difficult and that it's complicated and that it's dangerous, that it's precarious for a holy God to come down and to move amongst his people because they need something in order to enter his presence, that they need righteousness. And we looked at that last week, and we're going to go further into that this week, because what we're going to find is that David, um, David kind of thinks that he's come up with a solution to this issue. And as he presents this solution um, to this issue of God dwelling with us, what we find is that God actually has a very different he has a very different path and a very different solution in mind. So we're going to look this morning at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to go um, start in verse 1 and go through verse 17. This is God's word. Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel, of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling." In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people." And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for, for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel." And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring afterward. And you shall come from, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I shall discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you, before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." 
In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for your word. Um, your word, uh, we always give thanks when it's read because your word is truth and we need it. And we pray that this morning that by your spirit you would minister to us the truth of the good news of Jesus once again. What a privilege it is that we can be here, that we can gather before you, that we can hear from you, that we can come to your table. Father, I pray that we would not take these things lightly, but even as we look um, at this section of David's life, uh, may, may it make to us more clearly the beauty of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so what, what is going on in this passage? There's a lot of words, 17 verses that I just read to you. This is a long speech, essentially, that, that God is making to David. And so let's kind of catch up a little bit. Let's remember, especially if you're new with us today, let's remember where we were last week is that we found that David had finally... He'd finally made his way to the throne, and it had been a long, tumultuous journey to get there. But he was now Saul, who was his father-in-law, who had been chasing him, who had been trying to kill him. Saul was now dead. David is now on the throne. And David decides one of the first things that he wants to do is he wants to go get this Ark of the Covenant, this Ark of God, and bring it into the city. And we talked last week about the significance of this ark, that this is where God put his presence with his people, and yet it had been neglected, and it had been forgotten, and it was sitting in the house of Abinadab. And so they go and get it, but as they're bringing it in to the city, there is a little bit of a mishap along the way, to say the least, that Uzzah reaches out and touches it to, to keep the ark from following, and he drops dead. And what we found is that the people of God had forgotten they had forgotten the power, the danger of the presence of a holy God. And they had not taken the precautions that he gave them. He wants to be with them, and yet they ignored those precautions. And, and David now finds that because of his leadership, one of his own men is dead. But finally, he regathers. They figure out how to do this. They bring the ark into the city, and there's a huge party. There's much rejoicing. And so David is now, I mean, you kind of think at this point, this is a big, pivotal moment in David's life. I mean, he is now on the throne. He's settling into his, his palace. All of his enemies were told in verse 1, Yahweh, God, has, has taken um, care of them. He's given rest to David from all of his enemies. And he's finally home. And you, I mean, you know that feeling. It's hard to know the feeling that David had, but you know just if you've been on a tumultuous, long journey, and then you, you just cannot wait to be done. You can't wait to be home. Well, imagine what that was like for David, that he's finally there, that he's finally settled into this, this palace. He's finally settling into his new role. Um, gone are the days of living in tents. Gone are the days of wandering in the wilderness. Gone are the days of constantly going into battle. I mean, how many battles did David go into? Gone are the days of hiding in caves and running for his life. This is home. He's finally settling in. And so David thinks to himself, we've arrived and the next thing that I should do is I should make a permanent house, um, a permanent dwelling for the ark, for God's presence. And he says this, he, he says to Nathan, who's his, his kind of like right-hand man, his, the, the prophet pastor that he talks to and consults with, he says, you know, I'm sitting here living in a house of cedar, 
And yet God is out in a tent, and it shouldn't be this way. And Nathan says, yeah, I mean, sounds like you've got a plan. Um, go, go forward. The Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and is saying kind of, uh, Nathan, not so fast. Um, I've actually got something different in mind. And the rest of this passage is God speaking through Nathan to David and telling him something incredibly important. That God is revealing something about himself and something about what he is going to do that up until this point has not been nearly as clear as he makes it in this passage. And so that's what I want to talk about and think about this morning. And I want to look at kind of there's three sections in this passage. And I want to look at this in verses 4 through 7. We see how patient the presence of God is with his people. That the, the patient presence of God with his people. In verses 8 through 11, we see the house that God is building. That God is building a house. And then in the, the remaining verses of our section, we look at the one who will build that house, the builder of the house. So the patient presence of God, the house that God is building, and then the builder of, of God's house. Let's talk about verses 4 through 7 and the patient presence of God, which is hard to say. There's more peace for you, Joe. Um, sometimes... You know, this is an interesting, an interesting thing happens here is that sometimes some of our best inclinations, that some of our best impulses are wrong when it comes to God, when it comes to how we deal with him. And it, it's not like David's idea. You know, David moves into his house of cedar and he's thinking God's living out in a tent. We need to make a house for God. That seems like a great impulse. It seems like a good move. I think probably most of David's like um, impulse, most of his, um, I can't think of words. I speak for a living. Um, he can't, he, 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 what he wants to do is a good thing. But what we quickly find is that God disagrees and I think a lot of times, it, this is sort of like when we give a gift to somebody and we, we kind of think, oh, I'm going to get this person something really nice. And we go start thinking about what we're going to get them. And what we end up getting them is the thing that we think they should want, right? And oftentimes, the thing that we think that they should want is the very thing that maybe we like the best. And so we give this gift to somebody, and we're like, oh, here's the thing that, here's this gift for your birthday, and it's actually not really something that they want. It's something we think that they should want. And I think that that dynamic is going on here. So God sends word to Nathan, and in verses 4 through 7, I feel like those verses, even as I read them, they're a little bit playful. Uh, that God is, as he's talking to Nathan um, you, you hear it in his voice. He's saying, wait a second. You, you need to go back to David. Don't just say the Lord is with you and go and do this thing. You need to go back to David and you can say, and you can say something like this. Um, you want to build the maker and the creator of the heavens and earth a house? Like that's your, that's your goal? Like you want to build, um, you want to build a place for me to live? And then he goes on and he starts to say, I haven't lived in a house since I brought you out of Egypt. In fact, I've been wandering around with you. I've been living in a tent. I've been patiently traveling with my people, and I have never complained about it to you once. I don't need you to do this thing for me. And you know, what is God, what is he saying here? And I think that he's saying, what he's saying is simply this. The point, David, is not that I want a nicer house. 
The point is that I want to be with my people wherever they are and wherever they go. I don't need you to build me a nicer dwelling place. I want to be intimately with them wherever they are. That means I go where they go. And while you may think that this is the end game, and you may think, David, that we've kind of arrived and that you're settling in and this is the grand finale, there's still actually a lot more to this story. That this journey that we're on is not over yet. That we're almost there, we're almost established, we're almost settled, but not yet. David, we see how you would have come to this conclusion. We see why you have this impulse, but we're not quite ready for it yet. See, God is happy living in a tent because that's where God's people have been. And you, do you hear the humility of God? Even, I mean, the language I said is playful, but the language is also incredibly humble. I mean, the God of the universe is saying, I came down and I put my presence in this ark so that I might be with you. And I was with, when you traveled, when I delivered you and we went through the wilderness, where was I? I was with you in the wilderness that I want to forever and always be with my people. And I think that we could talk a lot about that and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute. But sometimes I think that we even, we get in situations in our life that are so dark that are so hard, that are so scary, that what we start to think is that there's no way, there's no way that God could be here with me. Maybe there's no way, that, and maybe some of those situations are situations we even got ourselves into, and we think there's no way that God is here with me. And, and what God is even saying in these words is that, yes, I am always there with my people. I am always there in your midst. That we think he must be too high above or too far away, and yet he is saying, no, I am patiently present with my people. And so in verses 8 and 11, God tells Nathan to explain some important things to David. And there's really this marvelous kind of twist um, in this passage that, that you heard it, that that da- it turns from David saying, I've got this great idea, I want to build God a house And the turn is this, is that God says, no, 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 you don't get it. The whole point, the whole point of this dynamic, David, the whole point of this relationship is not what you're going to do for me, but it's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to build you a house. I'm building you a place, and he hints at it even in those verses, I'm building you and my people a place of permanence, a place where there is Um, no threat from an enemy, a place where there is no pain and no sorrow and no disease and no death, a place where what we'll see at the very end of the Bible, um, that the gates are wide open at all times and they never close because there's no reason to close them. That's what I'm building for you, David. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build my people a house. And you kind of think, well, in David's defense... It's easy to pick on David. David wants to do something good. And David is also, I mean, he's following along with what would have been very common in his day. And so I am no historian or expert in the ancient Near East, but from what I've read from other commentaries, that this would have been a pretty normal practice for a king. who A king who um, is, takes the throne and settles in, that one of the things that they would do is that they would build a temple to their god. 
And why would they build a, a temple to their God? Because they wanted to appease that God. They wanted, they wanted to say to that God, look what we're doing for you. Look how much we're honoring you. And so now it's your kind of, now you have to, to turn and bless us. And it's a way to appease their gods. It's a way to maybe even manipulate their gods. And maybe sometimes that it's what their gods want them to do. Build me a nicer house. Build me a bigger temple. Fill it with more gold. And then maybe I will bless you. And we don't know if that notion is in David's mind or not. But if there is any of that notion in David's mind that I'm going to build you a house, God, so that you now um, will you'll bless us and we'll show you deference and you'll give us kind of what we need. If there's any notion of that in David's mind, God quickly dismantles it in verses 8 and 9 when he basically says this, don't you remember, David? Don't you remember where I found you? And this little speech is full of God referencing everything that he has done and everything that he's going to do. I'm the one who found you out in the pasture following the sheep. I have been with you always. I have taken care of all of your enemies. I'm going to make your name great upon the earth because through you I'm going to bless my people beyond their wildest dreams. And I will establish whose kingdom? My kingdom upon this earth. In other words, what what is God saying to David? I can only relate to you by grace. This relationship, it's not about what you are going to do that is great for me. You want to do big, great things for God? Wonderful. This relationship is about what I am going to do for you. This is the only way this this relationship can possibly work. You know, this whole, that whole um, dynamic and that whole scenario reminds me of, it, for any of you who've had young children in your life, there comes a point when um, they, they realize, like, okay, birthdays are rolling around, Christmas is rolling around, there's times in which uh, my parents buy me gifts. And th- it's a really precious thing and precious moment when a child kind of thinks, I want to buy my mom and dad a gift, you know, and so you've got like a three or four-year-old who's, you know, rolling in dough, right? they got tons of money. Uh, and they want to buy you a gift. And so they have to get one of you to, like, take them somewhere to get a gift, to pick out a gift, to pay for the gift for the other, for the, for the, for the parent, right? And it's like those gifts are precious. And we're like, oh, that's so sweet of you. But, like, at the end of the day, what in the world could your kid possibly buy you that you actually needed? And if they did, where is it coming from? Your pocket, right? They have nothing. Everything that they're going to give back to you already came from you. And that's exactly what God is saying to David. That everything that you have, I found you in the field. Everything that you have is from me. Everything in your life is purely by grace. It's purely because I have chosen to bless you. And so I am going to build you a house. I'm going to build a house in the way that I see fit. And so that brings up the question, what is God talking about? Because there's a lot of play in language in in this passage that the word house is used in several different ways in this one passage. And you think about how we use the word house, you can use it um, simply to mean, as David is talking about, a literal physical structure, right? Right? I want to build a house, a temple for God to dwell in. 
Um, you can use the word house to think about um, a family. Uh, the, for instance, the house of Udodge, right? Um, which we don't use that very often anymore because it does sound really pretentious. But, or you think about house and as, as a dynasty, that the house of this name will live on for like a royal lineage. And while David is talking about a literal house, God is talking, last, he's talking about um, that latter definition, that he's talking about a dynasty, a royal lineage, a kingdom that is going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever. And all of it is going to come, God is saying to David, through you, this little shepherd boy that I found out in the field. And so how, the question is this, in these last few verses, the question is, how is that going to happen? God is always making these promises, and they always, um, they're promises to his people, because in a way they seem impossible, right? You know, you're Abraham, you're going to have a child. <laughs> really? Things like that. How is this possibly going to happen? I'm going to build a house for you. Your name, your dynasty is going to live forever and ever. And up until this point, the longest dynasty that, that they had, the world had known was the dynasty that, of, of King Tut. It was about 250 years. And God is going, no, no, no. This is forever. This is going to go on forever. So how is that going to happen? Who's going to build it? Listen again to verses 12 and 13. Listen to what he says. He says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you die, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Keep going in the, you keep going in the Old Testament after David, what you find is that this dynasty continues, that this house continues, that the, that the reign of David continues, but it is not an easy road or a straight path. That most of the kings, go back and read about them, most of the kings that come after David are simply horrible. Eventually God's people are taken into exile. And then God is like silent He doesn't speak to his people for hundreds of years, and things are beginning to look really, really dark. These promises to David seem like a distant dream. And then you open the first page of the New Testament. You go to the the gospel of Matthew, and how does Matthew's gospel begin? It begins with a, a section that you usually probably want to skip over. It's a genealogy. And what does he say? What are the opening words of, of the New Testament? Are they this? Listen, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. It's the first thing that Matthew says. This is the genealogy. This is how we arrived with the Messiah, that he is actually the son of David. And where is Jesus born? Bethlehem. Where was David from? Bethlehem, right? The very town that David was from is where where Jesus is born, and most of his life is lived in relative obscurity. That Jesus was blended in, Jesus was fairly common, right? But then when it's time, when it's his time and he begins his ministry, here it's the first words out of his mouth. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
that the Messiah shows up and his first words or the, king, the kingdom that has been promised, it's here. Repent and believe in it. Turn from the other things you're trusting in and put your hope and your trust in me because the Savior has come. Here's this son of David coming out of nowhere announcing the kingdom of God. Is it any wonder that most of the people who heard him were pretty skeptical, right? Because they're, they've come to the, the long-awaited promised son of David, the one who is going to build and establish God's house forever, And this is what he looks like? This is where he comes from? That we thought there was going to be someone who looked like a king. They're expecting a warrior who would come and defeat their enemies and take a throne and reign forever. And here comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And when he gets there, eventually he's going to be killed and hung upon a cross. And a crown of thorns are going to be put on his head. And what does he do when Jesus rides in on that donkey? Where is the first place that he goes? Do you remember? He goes to a temple. He goes right to the temple. He goes right to this house that has been built for the presence of God. He goes straight to the temple. And what does he do when he gets there? Well, we heard it read a little bit earlier that he drives out the corruption that had taken place, people who were using the name of God to to line their pockets, that he drives those people out. And the people who are watching him remember the words of the prophet that said, zeal for his father's house is going to consume him. And then he says these words that baffle everyone that Jesus says about this temple that took them over 40 years to build, that he says, tear this down and I will rebuild it in three days. And everyone is baffled by this statement. And John tells us in his own little note that Jesus was referring to the temple of his body. And when he was raised from the dead after he was killed, when he was raised from the dead after three days, they got it. And what did they get? They got that God was building a very different house than what they expected. The God, what they got was that God doesn't want to just dwell with them that God actually wants to dwell in them. That he is building them, he is building us into a house that he will dwell in forever. And Peter gets this. Peter, who was an eyewitness to this, um, Peter gets it in his first letter when he says this in chapter 2, as you now come to him, a living stone who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. You now, who call upon the name of Jesus, are like these living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. What is he saying? He's saying that God now dwells intimately with you, in you. So it's not just, as we saw last week, that you can boldly come before the throne of God... Because Jesus has passed before you and that Jesus was literally struck down and smitten so that you can freely enter in boldly before the throne of God. It's not just that, but it's that the very spirit of God now dwells within you. You remember at Pentecost, these tongues of fire come down. And, you know, I, I, imagine, I don't know what that looked like, you know, but I imagine if you saw them coming down from heaven... What you would have thought is if the fire of God is coming down, we are about to be consumed. 
We are, how can anyone withstand and stand before the presence of God, the fire of God? He is a consuming fire. And yet the, those tongues of flame, those flames come down and they fill, instead of consuming them, they fill them. They enliven them. How can that be? I said at the beginning, it's hard to live with others, right? How can a holy God dwell with a people like us who are so unholy? How can we live together? And it's only through forgiveness, right? It's only through forgiveness. And you hear it in verse 14 of our passage that that God says to David, when my son commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. And you may think when you heard that, this can't possibly be about Jesus because Jesus never committed iniquity. And then you remember these words. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us and all of the judgment that was coming for us fell upon him and he was consumed so that we might be set free. And so the New Testament says over and over again, it makes this reference to us being now in Christ and Christ in us, that we are inextricably bound together that we are now one. And do you see, he was crushed for our iniquities so that that veil that separated us from, from his presence was, was literally torn in two at his death so that we might freely come in. So that you and I this morning, you and I, a bunch of nobodies, right? We might wear the royal robes of this dynasty so that we might become the inheritors of his grace, so that we might indeed dwell with him forever. Because the house that he is building is his church. And what he says about his church is that the gates of hell will never, ever prevail against it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there is a lot there for us to wrap our minds around. There's a lot there that makes us wonder, how in the world could this be? And Father, um, we thank you. As we come to this table, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And we thank you for his boldness, his love, his courage, his obedience. We thank you that he became sin for us, the one who knew no sin. We thank you that, that Jesus willingly laid down his life for people like us. Father, help us to comprehend what it means that you are now alive in us, that you have chosen to dwell in us and with us. And Father, may our only hope be found in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.